Amen. Thank you. All right, you can grab a seat. Good morning, everybody. Merry Christmas. If you, if you weren't able to join us on Wednesday night for our worship night, then the room looks much differently. If you were here with us on Wednesday night, thank you guys. We had a great time kicking off our Christmas season in worship to our King. And I do hope that over the last few days, you've been able to maintain that posture of coming and adoring Jesus. We wanna to continue to do that. Our Christmas season this year is really gonna focus on some of those words we sang right there at the end of that song. This idea that Jesus' kingdom does not work the way that we normally think. It seems backwards, upside down to us. But that request, Lord, teach us to serve. That's gonna be at the forefront of what we're gonna see in our study in Matthew. Um, and also in, uh, throughout this, this uh, month. We've been taking our time over this past year through the book of Matthew to talk about this idea that to be a believer, to be a Christian, to be a follower of Jesus is to be an apprentice of Jesus. That even as we sang in that song, not only truths that we believe, that I hope that you believe to be true about Jesus and his kingdom, but the way in that song, we also made requests, Lord, teach us to serve like you do. Help us to put our pride to death. Help us to see people like you do. Help us to put in practice what we see in you. To be a disciple of Jesus is not just to be a acquirer of information or a singer of songs, but a practitioner. That's what Jesus talked about in the Great Commission at the end of the book of Matthew in chapter 28 when he said, my mission for you as my disciples is to be about making disciples by baptizing those who believe, but then also teaching them to observe, to, to pay attention to all that I've commanded, to practice all that I've commanded, to pass on to others all that I've commanded. That's what we are called to do. But man, if we just try to do that under our own willpower, just muscle our way through that, if Jesus is just an example for us to try to live up to, we're toast. There's no way that we can live up to who he is. But if Jesus is not only our example, our teacher, he's also our savior, our rescuer, our ransom, as we'll see in the passage today. If he is the one who has come to redeem us and then empower us to walk in his steps. Well, gosh, then as we saw like in the last couple of weeks in Matthew, what is impossible for us is possible for God, amen? That's why we come to Jesus. We keep coming to him because what God commands of us as followers of Jesus, he also supplies. He has what we need to lead us to faithfulness, amen? If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to Matthew chapter 20. We're gonna be looking at verses 17 through 28 this week and next week. We're in the fourth of five main teaching sections of the book of Matthew. And this one that we're in today is a lot like the first one we saw back in chapters five through seven, the Sermon on the Mount. In that sermon, that classic sermon of Jesus, we talked when we were going through it about how that is all about this idea of how, what it means to live as citizens of God's kingdom among the kingdoms of this world. That the way that God's kingdoms works does, is not the way that normal life in the kingdom's government systems of our day works. And here in this fourth main teaching section, what's often called the community discourse of Jesus. In a very similar way, it's focused on the way, again, that we as followers of Jesus are called to live differently, and especially in the way that we treat each other. 
And we've seen throughout this section of Matthew the way that, like, this one's a little bit different from the Sermon on the Mount in that it's not just, like, a, a more sermon teaching of Jesus. It's a collection of back-and-forth conversations. Have you seen that? Starting back in chapter 18. Lord, who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Which is kind of the theme of this whole section. And what does Jesus do? Here's a child. Be like a child. That's what it is to be greatest in the kingdom. Lord, how many times should I forgive my brother when he sins against me? Is seven enough? Nah, go way more than that. And by the way, actually, also, here's a parable to talk to you about the importance of forgiveness in my kingdom. As Todd mentioned just a few minutes ago, at one point, the Pharisees come up to Jesus and they go, what about divorce? Talk to us about that. And Jesus responds and says, let's not just talk about divorce. Let's talk about God's purpose for marriage in the beginning and the reality of your hardness of hearts. But if I'm here to solve the problem of your hearts, then if you're a follower of me, you can live out your marriage or your singleness fundamentally differently than before. Again, we're going to unpack that more in January. But do you see the way throughout this section? It basically starts with people coming to Jesus. I got a question and Jesus teaches. What we're going to look at today, starting in verse 17, is the first time in this section where Jesus kicks something up. Jesus brings up a topic of conversation. And he brings up something that should have been familiar to his disciples by now. It's actually the third time he's talked about it. But it seems like it's still so far outside of their frame of reference, they're not sure what to do with it still, and so they switch topics. Okay, yeah, you ever have that, like, maybe a parent with your kids, you're like, hey, I really want to explain something to you. And they're like, yeah, what's that over there, right? Like, there's a squirrel I want to go focus on right now, right? And that's almost like what happens in this passage. And yet, even as they redirect the conversation to what they want to talk about, Jesus still brings it together in this beautiful way to teach us a foundational, a critical lesson. So if you are able to, would you stand with me? And let's read, starting in verse 17 of Matthew 20 through verse 28. You can follow along on the screen or in your Bible. And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem... He took the 12 disciples aside and on the way, he said to them, see, we're going up to Jerusalem and the son of man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified and he will be raised on the third day. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee, that's James and John, came up to him with her sons and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, what do you want? She said to him, say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. Jesus answered, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? They said to him, we're able. He said to them, you will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my father. And when the 10 heard it, they were indignant, fancy word for mad. They were mad at the two brothers, but Jesus called them all to him and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the son of man came not to be served, but to serve 
and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can take a seat. Let's take some time to walk through this together. Again, I hope you see the way this happened to be where we were at in the book of Matthew right now. But anytime you come across a statement from Jesus where he says why he came, I kind of hear jingle bells in the back of my head. It just sounds like a Christmas passage, right? Jesus came to do this, to give his life as a ransom for many, not to be served, but to serve. But if we start back in uh, in verse 17 of chapter 20, again, we see where Jesus, for the third time so far, is telling his disciples about his coming death and resurrection. They're actually starting to go up the hills into Jerusalem. He says, here's what we're going to do. And each time as he talks with his disciples about what's gonna happen with his death and resurrection, he keeps layering on more details. This time he adds more details in regard to this idea that there'll be the, the chief priests and the scribes who will put him on trial and they'll condemn him to death. But because the Romans, the empire in charge at the time, didn't give the Jews the the power to execute people themselves, they would have to hand Jesus over to the Gentiles, the Romans, ultimately to crucify him. That's a new bit of information as well, the the mode of his death. He said he's going to die, but this is the first time he says that he'll be crucified. But all three times he ends the same way, and he will be raised on the third day. I will rise again. And again, even though this is the third time he said it, it's very clear that it's still not sinking in. And for at least a couple of the disciples, it's almost like they skip right over what Jesus said. And they said, actually, we have a question about something you said earlier. Remember that thing you said earlier about all of us sitting on 12 thrones with you in your kingdom? Can we reserve some of those like particular seating arrangement in advance? Not only that, it says, look again, in verse uh, uh, 20, that they come up as actually it's their mother who comes up with them to make this request. Don't have to flip there now, but if you flip over to the book of Mark, chapter 10, you see this this same account, except mom's not a part of it. It's just James and John coming with this request. Here's what I think that that means. This isn't one of those situations where like a headstrong mom's going, no, I'm gonna go talk to your teacher. I'm gonna go talk to your, I'm gonna go talk to your coach. I got some words for him. And the kids over there going, oh, mom, you're making it awkward, right? Please don't, right? They want her to be there. They may have very well put her up to it. They want what she is asking for. And what is she asking for? She says this, I want to know if my sons can sit on your right and your left. And I made a joke about sitting arrangement a second ago. That's not what she's talking about here. To sit on the right hand and left hand of a king is basically to say, we're your number two and number, your number one and number two guys, right? We have the two positions of power and prestige and authority. We're basically on either side of you, right? That's what they want. They want positions of power and authority in Jesus's kingdom. And maybe for James and John, they felt like somehow they had a reason to make this request. I mean, if you remember back at the beginning, they're they're some of the first disciples that Jesus called together with another set of brothers, Peter and Andrew. And then Andrew gets left out. We're not sure why, but in in chapter 17, at the Mount of Transfiguration, when Jesus's appearance is changed and he's revealed in glory, it's Peter, James, and John that were there. And if you remember just a chapter before that, in chapter 16, Jesus has already told Peter that he will have a significant role in what's about to happen, right? Right? He's gonna be that rock on which the church will be built. He will have a foundational role in the beginning of the movement of disciples. So perhaps James and John are going, hey, you never said anything about us. Like, 
we've been with you from the beginning. Will we get to have special roles as well? And if that's what's on their mind, it's very clear that they have not gotten the whole point of what Jesus talked about in that parable of the vineyard that Todd took us through last week, right? Hey, in my kingdom, the first will be last. Just because you were in this first doesn't mean that you're entitled to something more, right? What about their mom? Why do you think, what was her motivation in this? Again, we can't know for sure what her motivation was, but in some ways she makes sense to me. As a parent myself, and if you're a parent as well, like we want our kids to succeed, don't we? We want to even know what do we do with our responsibility as parents to set them up well for the future, help them to gain the skills, the knowledge, the opportunities that will help them be productive members of society, right? As a parent, when you start to see your kids' passions, their skills, the things that they're good at come to the surface, that's exciting, isn't it? Even maybe if it's like something that's totally not from you. Like there's that certain kind of pride you can just like, oh yeah, chip off the old block. Yeah, we're, we're both good at that. But then when you go, wow, where did my son get so into like computer coding and stuff like that? That was never on my radar, but that's awesome. Go for it. That's great. On the same token though, when you see your kids discouraged, when you see them listless, kind of directionless, when you see them on the other hand start to get consumed with things that you go, that doesn't matter. You're wasting your time or actually that's harmful to you. Like that burdens us as parents, right? But if you see your kids latch onto something that you know matters, not just in this life, but for all time, man, what more could you want as a parent? Can you imagine what this would have been like for James and John's mom to watch them walk closely with Jesus? I mean, we actually see this, I don't know what you would call her, Mrs. Zebedee or something like that. We see her later on at the crucifixion. She's one of the ladies that's there with Mary, Jesus' mom at the foot of the cross. For, so for, for all we know, she most likely was a disciple of Jesus as well. The reason why she's there on this journey to Jerusalem is because like her sons, she is following Jesus. Look at the way she comes to him again here in these verses. She comes kneeling before him, acknowledging his authority. She speaks to him of his kingdom. She is confessing her faith that he is God's promised king. This is not just some mom asking, could you make my kids' lives easy and successful? Would you help them to get financially successful jobs? Would you help them to be academically successful so they can get a prestigious college, so that they can get a successful, well-paying job? Would you help them to be athletically successful so they can get a scholarship to the prestigious college to help them get a well-paying job? I'm not even knocking all those things as evil in and of themselves, but they're fleeting, they're fading. That, that stuff doesn't last, right? That's the stuff Jesus talked about in the Sermon on the Mount, that moth and rust destroy, that, that thieves break in and steal. But James and John have found a treasure that lasts. Again, we don't know all of what this mom's motives were. Probably like us, her motives were mixed. There was good motivation and bad motivation. But we do know what the object of her desire for her sons was. Jesus, I want them to be a part of your kingdom. And not just a part of your kingdom, I want you to put them to work in your kingdom. I'm asking you to give them positions of real authority and responsibility. 
If you're a parent in here and you're a follower of Jesus, does that echo the way you pray for your kids? Your desire for them. I want them to be great in your kingdom regardless of whether they're great in the eyes of the world. Is that your desire for yourself? Sometimes we can get stuck in that trap of almost wanting something for our kids that we know is, would be good for us too, but no, 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 I want them to have it. No, no, do you lead by example? Are you pursuing hard after Jesus in the same way that you desire your children to? But watch, okay, with all of that, watch the way that Jesus r responds to them in verse 22. Look what he says at the very beginning. You don't know what you're asking me for. You don't know what you're asking. As a matter of fact, actually in Greek, it's this. It's y'all don't know what y'all are asking. Jesus knows, James and John, it's not just mama making the request. They all want this. There's something here that Jesus needs to correct in their thinking. But I don't necessarily think this is a full-on rebuke. Like this isn't their get behind me Satan moment like Peter had back in chapter 16. He doesn't say, how dare you ask me for that? He just says, you don't know, you don't understand what you're asking me for. I would say in this way, it's almost like Jesus is saying, you're shooting at the right target, but you don't know why this is a good thing to shoot for. You don't know how this can be a good thing for me to grant to you. Because they don't yet understand that simple, humble, backwards, upside down nature of this kingdom that Jesus came to bring. And so that's what he proceeds to explain for them. He explains for them what they don't understand about their request in two ways. First, he talks about this cup. And then second, he talks about this different, fundamentally different way that greatness, that authority works in his kingdom. Let's look at the cup first. Look what right after this. He says, y'all don't know what y'all are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink? What's that about? He's not literally talking about hydration or something like that. This idea of a cup, it's a metaphor we even see in the Old Testament to represent a mission, a task that is given to someone to fulfill. Give me this cup and my responsibility is to drink it in the metaphor, right? Maybe if you're familiar, you know that Jesus will talk about this cup again in Matthew 26. The night before his crucifixion, when he's on his knees in the Garden of Gethsemane and he cries out to his father and he says, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. If it cannot pass unless I drink it, I am willing to do that. What's he talking about with this cup? Well, in reality, he's talking about everything he just said starting in verse 17, about how I'm going to be betrayed and put on trial and condemned and mocked and flogged and, flogged and beaten and killed. And Jesus is saying, in some ways, hey, did you hear what I just said about where I'm going? I know you switched the topic to talk about positions of power and authority, but were you listening to what I said? Are you sure you want to follow me where I'm going? Are you sure you're able to follow me there? And again, James and John, like the young men that they were, very self-confident, rather naive, go, yeah, we can do it, sure. Where's the cup? I'll drink it right now. Watch this. I can, I can chug it faster than John, I bet. They think they're capable. Sure, absolutely. Jesus, though, he knows. He knows they're not ready for this yet. He knows that when push comes to shove, 
when it's time for Jesus to drink the cup, he'll do it alone. They will all desert him and leave him alone. He will do what he says there in verse 28. Give his life as that ransom for many. That word ransom means the price paid to secure freedom for someone. The price paid to free them from Satan and sin and death. And I would say this, because Jesus would walk that path alone, they would be able to follow his steps afterwards. That's what Jesus says, right? He says, you will drink my cup. Not right now. You're not ready for it yet. But because I will walk this path first, the same spirit who will empower me to walk this path will be given to you to empower you to follow in my example. You will walk a similar path of suffering for my sake. If you're familiar with the way the story continues, you know in Acts 12, James is the first one of the 12 to die because of his faith in Jesus. He's run through with a spear. As far as we can tell from church history, John is the only one of the 12 who was not killed for his faith in Jesus. Died of old age or of natural causes. But that doesn't mean his life was any easier. It was full of persecution and imprisonment and exile, right? But because the Holy Spirit was given to them, they didn't shrink back, whether it was exile or death or anything else. And we are here today because of them. You get that, right? We're part of that same story. If you're a follower of Jesus, the same Holy Spirit who empowered Jesus empowered James and John and Peter to walk in that same path is with you. So if you're in the midst of suffering right now, whether illness, out of work, broken relationships, do you believe the Spirit is with you to walk you through it? to sustain you and not just keep you going, but transform you to be more like Jesus through the hardship you're dealing with. That's the story we're a part of. If on the other hand, life is kind of comfy right now, do you still though expect that following Jesus will mean walking a path similar to him? Be careful of the way We get comfortable, we get used to comfort, and we start to feel entitled to it. And next thing you know, our Christian life becomes some weird, domesticated, pulled the teeth out of the thing way of just making ourselves as comfortable as possible with all those thorns and weeds that Jesus talked about in the parable of the sower back in chapter 13. The deceitfulness of wealth, the desire for other things, the very things that Jesus said would choke us out and make us unfruitful. Jesus says, you will walk a similar path to me. Do we expect that? Jesus says to James and John, you're gonna walk this path, but those roles that you want to sit on my right hand and my left, they're not for me to give. I can't give them to you. My father's prepared them for others. Some commentators see this as possibly even an allusion to the two thieves that will later be crucified on Jesus's right and left because it's the only other time in Matthew where that phrase right and left uh, occurs again. That Matthew's almost intentionally dropping that little clue in there. And if that's true, I mean, right? Like whatever James and John are envisioning about what it means to be on Jesus's right and left, it's not gonna play out that way, will it? That's Jesus's point. He's saying, you want the glory of my kingdom. You want the position of power and prominence. But you don't yet understand that the path to that glory that you desire is through suffering and shame and rejection. 
but it is the path to glory. It is the kingdom of heaven. It is what true greatness looks like. That's the second thing that Jesus does. First, he talks again about that cup that they don't understand. But then he says to them, you don't understand the way that greatness and authority works. And this is so huge. We gotta walk through this together. Look at verse 24. When the 10 hear about it, they were indignant. They were angry with the two brothers. They're mad at James and John for jockeying for position in private away from them. They're probably mad going like, dude, seriously, you got your mom to go ask him for you? Like, come on. Probably mad that James and John thought of it first. All of that, right? We find out later at the Last Supper, as they're sitting with Jesus the night before his crucifixion, what's the topic of conversation around the table? Who's the greatest? Which one of us is best? This is a problem for all of them. The jockeying for position, the desiring power and prominence for themselves. It's a problem for all of them, and I would say it's a problem for all of us. And so Jesus says, okay, everybody get together. You all need to learn this lesson. Y'all need to hear what I have to say here. And he starts in verse 25 by creating this contrast. Look at this. We're going to walk through this and spend the rest of our time here. Jesus calls them to them and he says this. He says, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles rule this way. They lord it over those in their, in, under their power. Their great ones exercise authority over them. But that's not how my kingdom works. It shall not be so among you. Jesus uses the future tense as a command. You ever done that as a parent? Not just stop doing that, but you will not do that. That will not happen while you're in my house. Something like that, right? Almost stronger is that sense, it shall not be. Whatever you've seen from the rulers of the Gentiles, that's not the way that it works in my kingdom. Instead, he says this, whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Why? Because that's the example that I am setting for you. I am a king who came not to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. Jesus is saying, in other words, he says, I'm king, but I'm not like any king you've ever seen before. My kingdom doesn't work like any kingdom you've ever seen before. And if what you want are positions of authority and responsibility in my kingdom, then the first thing I need to do is take you through almost like a detox of sorts from all the twisted ways that you've seen power used, that you've tried to use it yourself I need you to learn from me. Watch the fundamentally different way that I use my power before I can entrust you with responsibility in my kingdom. I would say this is such a critical and counterintuitive idea for us. This is why we're gonna send a whole other Sunday in this passage. We're gonna come back next week and really just tunnel into this idea of how Jesus uses authority. And look at this passage in light of the whole biblical story because I really do think what Jesus is speaking to here is the way that God always intended us to use authority, power, positions in contrast to the way that we get it wrong. We've been talking a lot about Jesus and his upside down kingdom. What we'll see even more next week, he's the only one who's got it right, got it right way up. All of us have it backwards and twisted I wanna take a, few, a little bit more time today to just walk through kind of an introduction to prep us for next week. But I would just say this, if at the end of today, we're gonna to talk about it for, for a little while longer, if at the end of the day, today, you're still trying to wrap your head around this, that's totally okay, I feel like I am too. 
Again, we're going to come back to it in more detail next Sunday. But I would also say this whole idea of using authority for service that Jesus is talking about here, it's one of those things we will never grasp simply intellectually. It's one of those things we grow in our understanding as we begin to put it into practice. And so even at the end, I want to talk about some hopefully really practical ways for us to begin to practice this. But again, look there, starting in verse 25. He says, you've seen the way that the rulers that you've seen among the Gentiles, the nations, they use this lord it over, rule over it. In, in the Greek of it, it basically is this word to be master, or this word to use authority with a word that means downward. To rule downward. To exercise authority in a top-down, heavy-handed, oppressive way. That's what we see. That's what you see among the nations. The sense of I'm the one in charge, do what I say or else. One commentator I was reading, he says this refers to people who use their position at the top to bear down on those below them on the social scale. But he goes further because it's really easy to pick on rulers, government authorities, business leaders, and so forth and say, yeah, those bad guys, big business, big government, big pharma, big, I don't know, big sporting goods. I don't know what you would have. Oh yeah, the big impersonal thing like that. That's where the problem is. But he goes on and he says this. He says, this natural human pecking order is found not just among the great, those in positions of power, but at all levels of society. We see it on the school playground. We see it in our workplaces. We see it even in our families. In other words, this right here, what he says in verse 25, this is the default way that all of us naturally function. But it's not the way that God intended relationships and authority to work in the beginning. So Jesus says again, my kingdom doesn't work like that. And if you're part of my kingdom, it shall not be so among you. You want to be great? And you should. Be the servant. Be one who seeks to meet others' needs rather than just your own. Do you want to be first among my disciples? You should. And I would say, take that word first, not just in terms of like the first person, like first place in a race. They won, they're on the podium, they get the gold medal. But first in terms of the one who sets an example, who sets the direction for others to follow. Do you want to be first as in a leader among my disciples? Be the slave. He uses the word that's even lower on the social pecking order than that word servant of above. Jesus says, those are the ones who are first. Those are the ones who set the direction in my kingdom. Why do they get to be the ones who set the direction? Because they're just following in the example of Jesus. That's the direction that Jesus set, right? Look there again at verse 28 on the bottom. Even the son of man, we'll come back to that week. I think this whole idea is is encapsulated in this phrase, son of man, that Jesus uses that we'll unpack next week. But he says, this is the way I've come to use my power, not to be served, but to serve, to give my life as a ransom for many. I've come to serve not just in ways that are comfortable and visible, that make me look good in front of others, I've come to serve sacrificially. I've come to give my life as that ransom, that payment that secures freedom. Listen to me, please. If you are here this morning and you are not yet a follower of Jesus, you need to understand something that is fundamentally different about the Christian gospel versus every other world system and religion. This Jesus who we keep talking about, he is not just an authority figure. He is not just a boss who's here to tell you what to do. He's not even just a teacher who's here to tell you what you should do. He's not even just an example who says, here, look what I do. 
what you need most, what no other person in this world can be and do for you is what Jesus talks about there in verse 28. To be that ransom for you, that one to stand in your place on your behalf to free you from your sin, your shame, your guilt, the twistedness, the hardness of your own hearts, all the wrong ways that power has been used against you and all the wrong ways that you've sought to use power. He is here to rescue you from that, not to free you to live however you want, but to free you the way he designed you to live. He intended you to live. That's who Jesus is. That's who he came to be for you, for us. He came to do that for us so that we might turn and trust and follow him as our teacher, as our example, as even our king, the one who has absolute authority over us. And then to teach us not to just resist or rebel against his authority, but to go, oh my gosh, Jesus, if you're a king who isn't here to bear down on me in that heavy-handed way, but that coming under your rule, following you as king, actually brings life and blessing and flourishing, why would I fight against that? That's the kind of king that Jesus is. And so if you have not yet bowed your knee to this Jesus, do so today. Begin your apprenticeship with Jesus today. For the rest of us, and for all of us still, this is really key. What Jesus is talking about here, get this, I've heard this sometimes from certain people, that Jesus is a king who rules by giving away his power, by renouncing and relinquishing his position. I don't see that. I actually think that's out of line. What we see Jesus describe here in verse 28 is not the way he gives up his position as king. This is the way he exercises his power as king. When he serves you, when he gives himself as your ransom, he's ruling. He is ruling in that. This is why he says to his disciples, you've never seen a king like me before. You don't know what you're asking for when you're wanting responsibility and authority in my kingdom. You have to see what I do first. You have to see the way I turn this on its head in order for you to begin to learn to use authority like I do. Because here's the problem. If we take our preconceived notions, our own concept of the way we think the world should work and the way other people should do things if I was just in charge, and we try to plug those into Jesus's kingdom, they are incompatible systems. They don't work together. It's like putting gas in a diesel engine. It ain't gonna work and it's gonna cause big problems. And throughout the history of the church, Anytime that the church has gained power and tried to use power like the rulers of the Gentiles, we have screwed things up royally. And we in many ways in the West still live with the baggage of the misuse of power by the church over the past 1,500 years at least. We've got to wrap our minds around this. On the one hand, I would say this. If you desire authority leadership, responsibility in Jesus' kingdom. I, I do believe Jesus is saying that's a good desire. That's a good desire. But I think Jesus would also say, if you want to lead, do you want to serve? Because that's the way that I lead. Again, get this. This is not talking about using service, humble service as some man, way to manipulate things in order to gain power and then call the shots. 
That's a twisted way that our hearts will naturally go with this too. If I just hang down low, if I do the, the, the subtle thing to do to, to serve others, but my heart is really about ascending the social scale in order to be able to call the shots, we'll twist this thing around. This isn't about serving so we can get power. This is about serving so that even if we are given positions of authority and responsibility, we see them not as opportunities to bear down on others, but as even greater opportunities to serve. That as you assume authority, responsibility for others, whether in your home, in the workplace, even here within our church, it's not so you can make people do what you want, but because it actually increases your opportunity to serve, to care for others, and even call others to follow your example because you're just trying to follow the example of Jesus. On the other hand, I would say this. If you don't desire to serve, if you don't desire leadership or service, if you go, look, I'd rather just come. I hope you're done by 11.15. We probably won't be, just a heads up, because I got things I got to do. I'd rather just not stick my neck out. I'll worry, I'll, I'll worry about myself. Let everybody else worry about their, some, their selves. I would say this to you. You're wrong. That is, that is an equally wrong perspective on power and authority. I would say this, both the desire to wield authority wrongly over others and the desire to run away from all authority and responsibility. Oh, let your mom tell you what to do. I don't want to lead right now, right? Both of those are contrary to the example of Jesus. That is not at all what Jesus modeled. He didn't run from authority. He didn't run from opportunities to serve. Isn't that ultimately what Christmas is all about? The example of Jesus who went way out of his way to serve us, to meet us in our most desperate need. And I would say this to you, to say that you believe in this Jesus and you, but you have no desire to serve people like he did is to deny him by your conduct. So again, hear me. I don't think that Jesus is saying, don't desire greatness. Don't desire to be a leader. It's fine if you just want to be a seat filler. It's fine if you just want to be a warm body. If you want to just take up space in my kingdom, that's fine. Instead, I think, again, Jesus is saying, if you desire true greatness, and you should, it comes from serving others, not serving yourself. If you want to be first, if you want to be a leader worth following, and you should, then pour out your time and your energy and skill and sacrificial service to others because that's the example that Jesus, the great one, the first one has set for us. Amen? Here's the main points. I'm, I'm just, let me just boil this down for you in kind of like three main points. We'll talk about it a little bit more, but we'll come back to these next week as well. True greatness in Jesus' kingdom comes through serving others. Not using your power, your size, your strength, your position to get others to serve you. Second, true authority in Jesus' kingdom causes those under our responsibility to flourish. Again, we'll unpack that one a lot more next week. But here's the third one, which I think is really important. Seeking greatness... And using authority like Jesus did doesn't come naturally to any of us. We won't roll out of bed knowing how to do it this way. It is upside down and backwards from the way that we naturally operate. So here's the last two things I would say. We must learn how to do this from Jesus. And we must learn it among his people. 
That's the last thing I want to talk about here. Look again at verses 25 through 28. Do you see again that repeated phrase? It shall not be so among you. Whoever would be great among you. Whoever would be first among you. There's a very specific realm that Jesus is talking about here. He doesn't expect his way of using power and authority for service to work among the nations. But he says this is the way it must work among you. So where is it that Jesus encourages us to seek greatness? Among you. Where does Jesus say that we will learn to do it this way? As we serve and learn to serve among us. I know I just lost some of you. You want started thinking about a video game. I'm not talking about Among Us, the video game, if you know what I'm talking about. If not, I just distracted you. Anyways, come back real quick. <laughs> Jesus, I believe in this passage, is calling us to service among us, the local church, the fellowship of followers of Jesus in any given place. Let me make this really plain. This is where I want to really practically apply this for you. I would say this, the local church is to be the primary place where we serve and learn to serve like Jesus did. Because the local church should be that primary place where we serve. Again, not by primary, I don't mean exclusive. I'm not saying you only ever serve here among us. But by primary, I mean first. I mean, this is where it starts. This is the base of operations from which we conduct ourselves. And any other service that we do in our community, even in other, maybe even Christian nonprofits that even our church supports in the area, should be done in addition to, not in replacement of service among us. So I would ask you, is that a reality in your life? Do you have a habit, a pattern of service among us? Not just checking a box but a discipline of sacrificial service like Jesus that plays out primarily starting with your local church family. You need to, you need to. Last week, Todd kind of, uh, um, he made a joke about church kids who grew up and know all the songs and Awana and stuff. I'm one of those. I'm one of those kids who, by the grace of God, I did get to grow up in the church. I didn't do Awana, but I do know a lot of, a lot of the songs. But I would say this, I grew up at a small church uh, next town over, and because it was a small church, there was only ever like one to two paid positions. There was a pastor, there was a secretary some of the time. Everything else in the life of the church was done by us, by the church family. Things needed to get repaired, we figured out how to do it. Need to repaint the sanctuary, we do it. Got to trim the trees, all right, let's have a whole church work day, get everybody down here, we'll do yard work. And no joke, those are some of my sweetest memories as a kid growing up in the church. I loved church work days. I mean, probably at that time, I was much more of a hassle than a help on those work days. I loved the way that at the end, someone would fire at the grill and we'd have burgers and dogs and hang out together. It was such a cool way to have fellowship together. But I look back at that and I go, whether I was a tremendous help on those days or not, I was already being discipled through service in a context like that. But I will say this, even as a kid who grew up in the church, as long as I can remember, I've heard about this thing that we call the 2080 principle. You guys know what that is? You heard that before? that in any given church, 20% of the people do 80% of the work. And we wonder why the church in the US is fading in its influence. What do you expect? 
would just say this. Guys, even in this contrast that Jesus sets in this passage between the, here's the way it works among the nations. Here's the way it needs to work among you. Please hear me. If you are one of those Christians and there are far too many of us who are far too consumed with worrying about what the rulers among the Gentiles do with their power, who get so hot and bothered about it, who their solution to it is, well, here's what we got to do. We got to get rid of these twisted rulers, vote in other twisted rulers who will use their power in just as twisted of ways, but ones that we just happen to agree with a little bit more. Let's do the lesser of two evils thing. That's how we'll change the world. And then they come and meet with me or Todd or other pastors here and they go, how can we get people more engaged in politics? How we can get people more fretting and anxious about what's going on in the world? How can we get people out there to picket and protest? And please don't hear me wrong. I'm not saying that we shouldn't use our vote and our voice well, but please hear me. According to Jesus in this passage, where is the one place on this earth that people should be able to come to look and see power, authority, and used use in such a different way. Among us, here, we are to be what Jesus talked about back in chapter five. We are to be that city on a hill that can't be hidden, where people see our good works and are drawn to glorify our Father in heaven. This should be a place, not just what happens in this building, but in the life of this family, where our neighbors, those around us, can't help but look at us and go, there is something different about y'all. Look at the way you serve each other. Again, not perfectly, we won't do it perfectly, but not just some facade, check the box way of doing it, but to see the way that we are being trained like apprentices to serve one another, and they'll be drawn to glorify our Father in heaven. Do you believe that's possible? Do you really want to make a difference, make an impact in our community? Are you concerned about the way that things are going in our state or in our country? Do you really want to make a difference beyond just critiquing and complaining? It starts here among us. And the 2080 principle ain't going to get it done. Now, please, I know I'm speaking to some of you who are part of the 20% here at Cornerstone. Some of you are going to hear this later because you're actually overactively serving right now rather than being in this room with us right now. And the last thing that I want to hear, again, if you are actively serving in a sacrificial way in the life of this church, I don't want you to feel burdened by this. Oh, I got to dig deeper. That's right. There's only 20% of us, so we have to do 80% of the work. That's not sustainable, right? At the same time, though, if you have served faithfully in a role here, and even for you in your, in your heart, you sense... I think I am ready for more. I don't, we don't want to hold you back from that either. There's this principle that Jesus will talk about later, like in the parable of the talents, where he says, okay, if you've been faithful with little, you should be entrusted with more. And you won't run from that because you go, wow, this gives me more opportunity to serve and influence others. And so if that's the case, if you're going, man, I want to really pray through and think through more ways that I can be involved, we'd love to talk with you. But even more, my desire if you're part of that 20% is to increase that percentage by a lot, to give a lot more shoulders to shoulder that weight with us. As we've been building out this discipleship pathway, that's why we keep saying service is essential to our discipleship, just as essential as our understanding of scripture and our discipline of shared life, of building community with each other. So again, I wanna make this really plain as I wrap this up. If you consider yourself a disciple of Jesus, and you consider Cornerstone your home church, but you are not currently serving somewhere in some way among us, you need to. 
you need to. You may serve in our community. You may even serve in some of the great nonprofits that are going on, which is great. But again, that's in addition to, not in replacement of service among us. It is impossible to grow to healthy, well-rounded maturity as a disciple of Jesus and a disciple of others without cultivating that lifelong habit, that discipline, not checking a box, a growing discipline of serving others like Jesus has served you, beginning with but not limited to our local church. Do you hear me? Have I beat that horse enough? Does it still have a pulse? Okay, I hope that, because here's what I want to do. There's this blue paper that Todd mistakenly talked about. I want to talk about it now. <laughs> we put this on, um, on your chairs because, again, as we were coming up to this passage and just that conviction, this really is something that, God, that Jesus is calling us to do among us. It starts here. Here's a current list of needs within this church family. Again, a lot of that's gonna happen in terms of different programs and meeting time stuff that goes on here. That's not all that there is to service. If there are ways that we as a church family can serve you, please let us know that as well. A lot of these needs can be met kind of more person to person. But I hope you see front and back here, it's different. There's a lot of needs. There's a lot of opportunities to get engaged and to serve. I'm asking you, please take this with you. Stick it in your Bible, but don't let this be the last time you look at it. Here's what I'm asking you to do this week. I don't want you to make some snap reaction, check the box decision. I'm asking you first, pray through this. Take a look, read through this, pray and ask the Lord honestly, Lord, you're my king. How would you have me serve among us? Even if you look at some of these on there and you go, shoot, I can't play the piano. Okay, that's probably not a need for you to meet. But pray that God would raise up someone within this family to meet that need, right? That's the, that's the goal this week. Pray through this. The next two weeks, we're going to give you opportunities to respond. There is a little QR code on there that takes you to even just a little volunteer uh, form that you can fill out. And let us know if there's ways that you already, you don't have to wait till next Sunday to respond. But please take that time to pray initially. As you look through this again, um, I would say even to those of you guys who are students, junior hires, high schoolers, I love the fact that, I would almost, there's a ton of you that serve regularly in our children's ministry. That's awesome. I love the way you're already seeing a walk with those who are younger than you, right? But I hope you even see on this sheet, there's a lot more ways that you can be involved here in your church family than just children's ministry, though that is a great way too. Some of the needs that are on here will require us to get to know you a little bit, get a sense of your growth, your maturity, what tools you got in your toolbox to see if that's the right fit for you. Some of these needs, especially if it has to do much more hands-on with counsel, discipleship, mentorship. Well, some of those roles, we would say we reserve those for, for those who've committed to membership here at Cornerstone. Because we believe that it's important in roles like that to make sure we're working from the same biblical foundation. And with an acknowledged sense of accountability to each other. And membership is the way that we acknowledge that sense of accountability and desire to work together. So again, if you desire to serve in some of those, just know if you have not yet committed through membership, but you want to serve like as a small group leader in our uh, student ministries or something like that, we'll probably have a conversation with you about membership at the same time. We'll walk patiently through that, but that's just uh, one of the things for some of those roles. So here's what I want to do. Okay. I'm going to invite the band to come back up. We are going to sing one more song about, again, the distance that Jesus went from to come and to serve us and our heart to now worship and follow him because of that. But before we sing that song, they're gonna come up and just play softly. I would ask you, even start right now, take that blue piece of paper in your hand, spend a minute or two already beginning to pray, Lord, how would you have me serve among us? 
Sound good?